Exploring the natural world, one podcast episode at a time. This is For What It's Earth. Hi all, and thank you for joining me for another episode of For What It's Earth by me, Marissa of the Art of Ecology. Here, nature enthusiasts, animal lovers, and eco-warriors can discover and explore so many facets of the environment that we all love and some creative ways to make a positive difference for the planet. This week, I am joined by Molly Bell Higgins, who is a fellow environmental educator and herp enthusiast, and we are going to take a look at how many reptiles and amphibians can adapt to survive the cold that is impending upon this region. So welcome, Molly. Hi. Can you introduce yourself a little bit and talk about kind of your background in science, especially in regards to your reptiles and amphibian passion? So I um, am a graduate from Delaware Valley University. I graduated with a degree in uh, zoo science. Uh, It's got a much longer name, actually. My degree is not really in environmental education or herpetology or native wildlife. My degree is mostly in captive animal care and education. Um, The education piece is because I specifically wanted to include more education into my my schooling. My primary interest was in reptiles. I took classes in herpetology. And I have personally a lot of pet reptiles, Um, a lot of them. I have somewhere around 50 pets in my house right now. Wow, I was just going to ask how many is a lot. Yeah, somewhere around 50 uh, reptiles, amphibians, and cats. Two cats, the rest are herps. Herps being... um, reptiles and amphibians. Um, herps is the, is the slang, the slang word, <laughs> uh, short for herpetological. Um, yeah, it's the slang word for reptiles and amphibians that most keepers will use. And also people who study them, um, when they go out looking for wild ones, will say they're going herping. Um, I, I know a bit about our native species and I know a lot about how, to care for them in captivity. Um, So that's my, primarily what my background is. And we're talking today about their winterizing um, process, which actually is a big part of keeping reptiles in captivity. Even exotic ones uh, will do the hibernation process. And some keepers actually have to, if they want to breed their reptiles in captivity, they have to start do the winterization process or the animal will not reproduce so that's a big process that lots of keepers need to know about and help with okay so you were saying that that's something in captivity that's really important Mm -hmm. and there are all sorts of weird kind of pseudo hibernation torpor brumation hibernation Mm-hmm. Um, so what in winterization for captive ones, and we'll talk more about wild ones and how they yep. for a little bit, but yep. can you kind of just quick give like a little brief description about what winterization might look like for captive, especially the ones that you might have or mm-hmm. people who might have a pet right. dragon or a pet box turtle. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's the, the term for reptiles, winterization, for the most part, and amphibians, is brumation. That's the one that they undergo. Brumation being 
that uh, they're not hibernation is like they they pass out, they're unaware, they go to sleep for the entire winter. Reptiles and amphibians brewmate, which means that they're actually technically awake the whole time, um, more or less. They're not they they shut down most of their body functions with a couple and leave a couple on turned on basically. So they'll leave their visual processors on or their sensory processes on and be able to then feel or see changes in their environment still. And if they if there are warm periods during the hibernation or brumation season, they will wake up more and move around and then go back to their like stasis basically. And in captivity, it's the same. Um, lots of things can trigger it. Uh, for example, my I my bearded dragon brumated a few months ago, which is a weird time of year for her to brumate. A little warm then. It was summer when she was brumating. Um, and the reason that she started brumating is because I swapped her enclosure. She I moved her to a bigger enclosure, and I hadn't quite figured out where all the lighting was meant to be to make it as hot as she needed it to be. Um, and so I put her into this new enclosure. It was new. It was different. It was a little cooler than she was used to. And she was like, time to sleep. I, I actually waited to add the heat because once she started to go to sleep, I was like, I can't really interrupt her. She started the process. So I waited and slowly, gradually increased the heat in her enclosure until she woke up again. You don't really need to brumate some of your pets. Like if, if you have a bearded dragon, you don't have to like try to make them brumate unless you're breeding them. But if they decide they want to brumate, for if your house drops a few degrees and you don't really realize that the exhibit has also dropped a few degrees, you should let them undergo it if they're healthy. If they're not healthy, you you don't want to let them <laughs> right. roommate because they will not wake up. Um, yeah, their, their immune systems are one of the things they shut down quite a bit oh my goodness. when they go into brumation. So they, they are very susceptible to infection and disease during brumation. A lot of them don't survive brumation in the wild even. Um, their immune systems are shut Their down. immune systems are shut down. Yep. It's the same with um, some fish, like koi, if you have a koi pond. Springtime, a lot of times you'll have die-outs in your koi pond because they're waking up and their immune system hasn't quite caught up, but the bacteria has already started growing from the sunlight. Oh my goodness. Um, and so they'll so you'll have die-outs in the springtime sometimes. It's a lot easier to maintain in a in a captive setting, though. I had no no risk of my bearded dragon right. getting ill or or anything um, during her brumation because she was just she was in her nice clean enclosure. Wow. Okay. Mm -hmm. So then, in terms of the wild ones, I know personally hiking around, especially this time of year. I think it was November. It's either November or early December, a couple of years ago, 
I was hiking and accidentally disturbed some leaves and I thought I kicked a rock. Turns out it was not a rock. It was a brumating Eastern box turtle. Right. So this would be your wild mm-hmm. turtle, a native species here. For me, I got really concerned because I know for a wide variety of animals, mm-hmm. if you wake them up during a hibernation process, that can really mess with energy supply. Mm-hmm. So in terms of reptiles, you're saying this brumation process is a little different. They can right. wake up, go back to sleep. You probably didn't bother that turtle at all, especially if he was that close to the surface. Reptiles and amphibians, you got like two in this area, you've got like two different types of brumation that they'll do. There's underwater brumation mm-hmm. and then there's land brumation. Um, and they will, the land creatures such as like toads, um, some species of salamander, box turtles, snakes, and lizards, they do obviously the land type of brumation where they'll find a find a spot or dig themselves a spot um depending on the species and that's where they'll they'll brumate it's called a hibernaculum their their spot that they make for themselves and box turtles are one of the ones that will dig themselves a spot um and if he was that close to the surface it was not cold enough for him to want to dig further because like i said they're still aware of what's going on and they know very well what the temperature is because they are ectothermic. Um, ectothermic is the science word for cold-blooded. <laughs> right. Um, which is, cold-blooded is the colloquial term, but it doesn't really represent what they are very well. Um, basically what they are is they're, whatever the temperature around them is, that is also the temperature of their body. We are endothermic, meaning right. produce Warm-blooded. via metabolism. Right. Our, our body maintains its own internal temperature right. unless we're, we have a fever or the mm-hmm. external te- or, or the external temperature is so extreme that we can't, you know? Right. So they, they are whatever temperature the air around them is or the water around them is. So they're very, they know exactly what the temperature is the whole time they're brumating. And if the temperature gets too cold, they will dig further down. Okay. How far might one dig? I, that one, I don't know. Um, that depends on the animal. Um, a box turtle, I think they can dig up to like six feet down. Wow. I could be wrong. I, that, that could be wrong. I'd have to double check that. But they, they, I know they can dig a long way. Okay, but it's not um, like he's just digging a little pit it's a tunnel like down yep they go down wow salamanders will do the same thing not as deep obviously but they'll they can they can go down they'll dig intentionally if it starts getting too cold to avoid the frost line okay Mm -hmm. um so you probably didn't bother that turtle he if he was that close to the surface it was cold but not cold enough for him to want to dig further um and like i said they're they're semi awake um so you like accidentally nudging him or whatever he might have felt that and just been like oh okay and moved or or not moved if he didn't feel threatened and it would have been fine the thing that you don't want to do is move them when they're brumating cuz that could throw them off leave them alone if they're exactly where they need to be um, and if they're not, then they don't survive. And that's just 
the way the cookie crumbles. But yeah, a lot of them will get eaten actually during that time or during the spring when they're starting to wake up because they're like underground and the birds can see or smell them and they're not quite awake yet. So um, yeah, they'll get nabbed. But yeah, if they're, if they're, if you find one in the woods, a snake or something, a toad, and they're not moving and it's cold, then they are brumating and they are intentionally in whatever spot that they're in. Okay. So we should not think, oh no, it's sick. It's dying. I need to right. go to rehab center. Right. If you bring it inside, that could, that could start the wake up process. And if they re- then release it again, it might be too cold for them to re-enter brumation before they freeze. Good to know. So we've got the Eastern box turtle that I mentioned. That's a native mm-hmm. here in Pennsylvania. Are there any others that are found wild regionally? I know there's the red-eared sliders, but they're super invasive. Yeah. Um, so yeah. All, all reptiles and amphibians in this area will undergo brumation. Oh. Um, we have in Pennsylvania, 21 species of snake, 16 nice. species of frogs and toad, 22 salamanders, four lizards and 13 species of turtles, including box turtles and aquatic turtles. So box, the box turtles are the only land ones. The rest of the turtles are going to be brumating underwater. Okay, so um, big turtles, are they native? Yes. Yep. Okay, so um, they're gonna be in the water then when they- Yes, are- snapping turtles, mud turtles, musk turtles, spotted oh, turtles, painted turtles, all those guys are brumating underwater. Are they also digging in the mud or how? They'll, they'll kind of bury them? themselves if they need to in the mud underwater. Um, and they're a little interesting because they will, they'll, like, they'll wake up and swim around if the water is not fully frozen. Okay. And typically they'll be brumating in water that doesn't freeze all the way to the bottom because obviously that would not be good. Right. Um, <laughs> they can't they can't freeze and then thaw out like some some frogs can they are under the water in the mud and will occasionally wake up and move around like i said Mm -hmm. but they have a couple weird um features to help them some scientists think that their shells the calcium the quantity of calcium in their shells and bones help with the lactic acid that builds up because they are still processing fat a little bit and stuff while they're asleep and that produces waste and they don't, they're not really taking in any oxygen enough to help with that. So they're, some scientists think that the calcium in their shell is helping with that. That's Um, fascinating. The bind or, or, um, or like counteract the lactic acid buildup. And some turtles can do the thing that amphibians do um, and exchange water through their skin a little bit or exchange oxygen, excuse me, in the water through their skin. Um, And the spot that that happens is right by their, by their cloaca. So people call it butt breathing, but. um, (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Yeah. So they have, they have a lot of blood vessels there close to the edge of the, their skin and they can sort of exchange oxygen through that. Wow. Um, just like a fish's gills, but much less efficient. So um, it, so it, it's just a, like a little bit of help that they need because their, their body processes shut way down. 
their heart basically stops beating. They don't breathe. They're not, they're metabolizing things very slowly. Okay. So just that amount of oxygen is enough. That's amazing. Mm-hmm. I had no idea about butt breathing. I love learning thing. things. That's yeah. awesome. <laughs> so I know you mentioned it for a little split second. And I know other um, adaptations that are cool. Like we've got butt breathing. That's super mm-hmm. cool. We've got kind of what I like to think as an also sci-fi nerd of cryogenics, where mm-hmm. I believe there's some sort of frog species that can- Wood frogs freeze their blood and then thaw back out. Is Mm -hmm. that commonly found across amphibians or is that? I think that's just a frog thing. And the only one I've seen people have done research on is wood frogs specifically. Those native, right? Right. There is a native species of wood frog. The, The ones that they're researching are mostly in Canada and Alaska. And those guys, what they do is they can, they can freeze and then rethaw their whole, like when the spring comes and their body thaws, they will come back to life. And what they're doing is they're jacking up the glucose level in their blood. The body will freeze, but the cells do not. The water inside their cells don't freeze. So the cells are still alive and functioning independently of one another. They don't like, they don't move or communicate, but they're kept alive. So that when the thaw comes, the cells can just go back to work. When we get frostbite, it's our whole, whatever part of our body, say it's our finger. All of the cells in that finger have frozen solid and are therefore dead. When your cell freezes, it's done. Right. But if the cell stays alive, then it will come back to life. So is that in, I'm assuming because you're saying if, a cell actually completely freezes it's done it's dead yeah they do this throughout all of the types of cells muscle cells skin cells organs mm-hmm. they do all wow yep but parts of them are still frozen solid like if you pick one up and like try to move its leg it will crack right off oh, but like goodness. yeah wow yeah don't do that we yeah, not- no don't don't mess with a frozen frog but <laughs> um <laughs> but they like i said they the the cells that matter are still wow not frozen in there are there other kind of like cool weird bizarre adaptations that not that i could think of snakes typically are just a avoid the cold type of creature um one thing i'll say that um is interesting in brumation versus hibernation reptiles stop eating for a couple weeks and expel all their waste before they brumate. They don't have anything in them. So how do they deal then? I My background is more mm-hmm. in mammals, so we always think mm-hmm. of the bears that gain, yep. you know, a huge percentage of their body weight mm-hmm. in fats and lipids to then be metabolized and keep them alive throughout the season. So how mm-hmm. would... I mean, snakes or any other sort of reptile or amphibian be able to survive for that amount of time and not wake up starved. Their metabolisms are already so much lower than any mammal. Their metabolism just normally is is very, very low. They don't breathe very often. Their heartbeat is very slow. 
um, a snake can hold its breath for a super long time because they don't, they just don't need to breathe as often. Their metabolism is super slow already. And now when they're going into brumation, they're basically just shutting everything down. Their heart beats like maybe once a minute, like, and they're, they're just, they're just shut down. Um, so they don't need to, they don't need to metabolize anything because there's nothing to fuel. They're just in, in a very, very low state. And then if they wake up, they do have a little body fat that they can draw off of, but because their metabolism is slow and, and the, the way their bodies are structured, they don't have very much fat. Mm -hmm. Um, but they, like I said, they don't need that much, um, if they wake up and they have to move around, they're drawing off the fat a little bit, but they don't really eat either when they wake up. Um, they'll sometimes drink water, but usually they don't want to eat because what happens is they, their digestive tract will hold the feces and then they, they'll go, it'll go septic. It can rot. Right. They just don't need as much because their metabolism is so low. So Mm -hmm. I know a lot of the reptiles in captivity, people might think, oh, I need to feed these animals daily, which that's mm-hmm. too much. So they maintain that low metabolism even once they've woken up, right? Right. Every reptile is different. So for example, the bearded dragon I have should eat basically daily. Okay. She's a much more active reptile than my ball python who eats every two weeks. Okay. Some, some reptiles are even notorious for just stopping to eat when they don't, don't feel the need to. It's, it's, they're all very different. Most of the time, lizards eat more often than snakes, um, for example. Uh, turtles as well eat more often. They'll eat semi-daily um, during the times where they're active, but they're also moving around a lot more. They're not as sedentary as snakes. Um, they're, they're doing stuff when they're awake. Right. Which is why when they're starting to think about brumating, when it starts to drop in temperature, they stop eating and wait for everything to, to come through. Snakes are very interesting because they'll just stop eating sometimes. And people, people always get really worried. Um, ball pythons especially are notorious for doing this, where uh, in the captive setting, they're, they're the ones um, that people talk about the most because they're very common pets okay. and they're very... They do this very often where they'll just go off food and you won't know why because nothing has changed in their environment uh, seemingly, but sometimes they just stop eating um, and no one really knows why. Um, I saw somebody had a ball python that went off food for like a year and a half. Oh my goodness. Just refused to eat. And then one day was like, okay, I'm hungry again and started eating like everything was normal, you know? They can go a really long time without eating because their metabolism is so slow. How mm-hmm. does that impact their lifespan? Is that what contributes to a lot of reptiles having really long lifespans? Then? Yeah, it's the metabolism, I think. That's absolutely amazing. I didn't know that one either. Yeah, other reptiles can too. It's not ideal for lizards and snakes to, or ex- excuse me, lizards and turtles to not eat for that long. But they, I don't think they can go a year, but like they can, they can push it as well. They don't typically want to though. They're, they're ones that'll eat whenever they see food, but. (laughs) Very opportunistic. Yeah. Which is why a lot of 
captive uh, lizards have obesity problems. <laughs> uh oh. <laughs> yep. Um, you see a lot of people with very, very fat bearded dragons. And you can't see it as well. A lot of people, um, I'm going off topic a little bit here, but a lot of people who are um, reptile keepers who are inexperienced will have a fat reptile and not even know it because their fat appears in places you wouldn't expect. Like they don't get fat tummies usually. Right. Um, like bearded dragons, a pretty classic sign that you have a fat bearded dragon is they have these two lumps on their head. Okay. And it's a fat deposit. Two, two little fat deposits right there. And, you know, most people think that's just a normal fe feature of their bearded dragon, but it's fat. <laughs> and I know you taught me about how to kind of tell if a snake is fat by the way their scales lie on their body. Uh, they'll have a divot where their spine is and that comes out like, like a heart shape. Okay. That means they're fat. <laughs> okay, <laughs> if their spine looks indented. Everyone who is listening here, mm -hmm. if you have, if you have reptiles as pets, go mm -hmm. and check for fat deposits. Mm -hmm. And then put them on a little bit of a diet. <laughs> well, that's all good to know. Yep. <laughs> back to the wild. Yeah, sorry. Back to, yeah, back to wild brumation. <laughs> wild animals. Mm -hmm. So with birds, I'm assuming this is not the case now with reptiles a lot of birds that are going to trigger kind of their winter adaptations for migrating, it's based on, oh, I don't have food resources here, but they are looking for food all the time. So I'm guessing that's not what triggers brumation or any sort of winterization. Nope. What that is, not, is the trigger? For the most part, it's triggered by temperature okay. and also circadian rhythm. They're, they're like day-night cycle. Right. So they can tell. They have a very strong sense of circadian rhythm and the obviously being ectothermic they also are very keened in to uh the temperature so when they start to notice the days get shorter mm -hmm. and cooler is when they start thinking i should probably stop eating for a couple of weeks um before i go to sleep or find a good spot so i know you said your bearded dragon was brumating at a bizarre time but the temperature had changed is there a certain time when the a lot of the wild species, like, does it usually happen um, October, November, mm -hmm. or does it? So, so for, for bearded dragons and other exotic species in captivity, um, there's something interesting that people have observed where sometimes during the summer, your bearded dragon will want to brumate because in Australia it's winter and that's Whoa. where they're from and yeah so it's it's sometimes they the circadian rhythm is so ingrained in their in their species that they remember when they're supposed to in the wild um wow. yeah that's pretty crazy and i don't know how much of that has been scientifically studied um this is like keepers observations um right. for the most part um but also, when it's cool, they'll sometimes want to brumate as well. So it kind of just depends. Some of them will start wanting to brumate in like October, and some will be like, it's July, and that means in Australia it's time to brumate, you know? So yeah, to go to bed. Most, most people can get them into the winter brumation cycle um, pretty easily just by virtue of keeping them really warm. 
right in the summer and cool in the in the fall and like I said you don't have to brumate your animals unless you're breeding them or if they decide they want to brumate which that's kind of one of the points of wild species is passing on genetics so they mm-hmm. are very into breeding right so yeah so they they the bearded dragon so for example my bearded dragon if she doesn't brumate will never start brooding Mm-hmm. she's female um because she that they it just they won't it won't trigger mm-hmm. um the hormones won't trigger without having brumated first and it's the same for breeding if you are breeding box turtles in captivity um okay. so like we can't keep eastern box turtles and breed them in pennsylvania but if you live in california you can um and if you have and it's the same vice versa we can't they can't breed three-toed box turtles out west, but we can breed them here, um, just by law. Um, and that's the same thing. If you want them to breed and have a clutch of eggs, they will not unless they hibernate first. Um, yeah, and it's the same. Actually, I breed crested geckos, who, in the wild, live on an island where it's about seventy degrees all year round. And uh, they don't need, they don't ever brumate. That's not something they are biologically equipped wow. to do. They don't brumate. They can't brumate. If the temperature gets too low, they die. Oh, okay. that's, yeah, they can't, they can't <laughs> physically do that. Oh, I'm sorry, kicked my cat. Um, <laughs> she's always underfoot when I'm sitting at this desk. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so they, they can't brumate because they're not biologically able to, need to do that in the wild they're so far removed from having to do that that it's not built into their bodies anymore um but they do they do rely heavily on circadian rhythm to breed um that's kind of the replacement yeah they 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 know what time of year it is and will breed accordingly based on what the light cycle is um, and a lot of people will do a cooling season where they keep it cooler and darker longer okay. to stop the females from laying eggs um, so that they don't deplete their calcium too much. Right, that takes a um, lot of energy and resources. Right. So right now it's cooler in the room and they are not, they, I, I just leave the lights how it is naturally outside. Um, so they know not to. To lay their eggs. Wow. Mm-hmm. Yep. Funny. Yeah. So some some reptiles and amphibians rely on the circadian rhythm more. Some rely on the temperature more. Um, some both, like the bearded dragons. It's yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Oh, one thing I wanted to mention is that a lot of snakes will decide to brumate in people's like houses, basements, uh, sheds. Because they don't really dig their own space like box turtles do. Eastern hognose snakes, um, they probably dig their own burrows sometimes. But it's a lot of effort, and they have no arms. So, (laughs) (laughs) 
(laughs) So most of the time they'll find a den or a nest or uh, something to hang out in that they didn't build themselves. And uh, sometimes the hibernaculum is somebody's house and, or your, your storm cellar or whatever. So what should people do then if, if you are the chosen house? (laughs) Mm -hmm. Well, if it were me, I would just leave them alone and let them let them do it. They're not going to do anything to you. That's for sure. They're just going to hang out and kind of sleep until it gets warm enough. And then they'll leave to go hunt outside again. I I would be feel blessed to have a snake choose my location as as their, (laughs) their hibernaculum. (laughs) I know we both love wildlife and Mm -hmm. all sorts of animals, but other than just general respect for life forms, right? Mm-hmm. Why should people be caring about protecting or conserving the herp species? Why are they so ecologically important? Right. Every animal has its place in the ecosystem where if they vanished from that place, it would cause a, a domino effect. Yeah, um, yes. For example, frogs are a very key diet for uh cranes Mm -hmm. cranes love frogs um if we didn't have frogs we'd have less cranes because they can't fish all the time they're gonna catch frogs too you know um and snakes are really really good pest control animals turtles are eating fish eating Mm -hmm. plants distributing seeds carrot like Box turtles are really good um, at, they, they eat fruit and stuff that's fallen and they carry the seeds elsewhere. Because box turtles travel so far, they're a very key part of that. Aquatic turtles don't do that as much, but they're still helping maintain the aquatic ecosystem of their pond, mm-hmm. eating gross fish. They're helping curb the fish population. They're maintaining populations. Right. Pest populations, mm-hmm. providing food resources, depending on the species to others. Mm-hmm. So if you could list just one way, which I know is a loaded question because there's a lot of ways and a lot of reasons why, mm-hmm. but just one way for your average person to make a positive impact on local reptile and amphibian populations, what could somebody do? Mm-hmm. Well, there are a lot of ways you can help. Um, the first one that comes to mind is to not kill snakes on site. <laughs> I okay. used to um, I used to work at a at a nature center where people would come in with dead snakes in bags. Like, look, I killed this copperhead. Aren't you proud of me? And I'm like, that's a milk snake, and you did a bad thing. Don't kill it. Leave it alone. Still it won't a, bother you. Still a yeah, <laughs> member of the ecosystem. Right, exactly. And they are there is only three species of venomous snakes in Pennsylvania. And if you saw one, I'd be shocked. All right, they they are not wanting to live near people. But in a more positive note, um, one thing that you could do is a lot of people like building backyard habitats or Mm -hmm. if you have a little space, um, a little yard, anything like that, um, and people will build backyard habitats. And most people gear their habitats towards birds. Right, that's an easy one to do. Right, and those are all good, excellent things. But when you're building that, Maybe add a couple things at ground level for the snakes and the toads and the frogs and the salamanders, like a, a piece of wood or <laughs> a stack of rocks, um, leaf litter, uh, stuff like that. If you have like a plank of wood out there, 
and it's in a damp shaded area you'll have salamanders guaranteed hanging out there um if you live near a water source um or or snakes if you don't and yeah it's just a good a good little area you can build literally a couple rocks in a, in a sunny place excellent habitat for a rignet snake um because they're real tiny um or or a black racer or a, a baby garter snake so for what it's earth each person who can help protect and maintain these local reptile and amphibian populations by building your own little habitats and just generally respecting wildlife and understanding that hey these snakes have a role here and are important members of all of our connected ecosystems you can be making a huge impact on the rest of the planet at large too. So with that, thank you so much for digging deeper into the natural world with the Art of Ecology and with Molly. Thank you again for joining me today. That was awesome. I know I learned a ton, which is Thanks always for exciting. Mm -hmm. But before we sign off fully, do you have anything that you want to plug or give shout outs to? I mentioned before I breed crested geckos. Um, if anyone had any questions about anything we talked about today or was interested in learning about wild or captive reptiles or crested geckos, uh, you could follow my breeder page on Facebook. It's um, Fairy Tale Cresties. And so anyone who wants more info, yep. you'll just go to that description, click on the link, and it'll take you right to Molly's page. So it also has an email address. If uh, It's fairytalecresties at gmail. Well, thank you. Of course. If, this was fun. Oh, good. Yay. <laughs> I'm glad you enjoyed it. Mm -hmm. If you all listeners enjoyed this week's episode, learned something as well, please support, review, and continue to follow along to explore more of the wonderful ecosystems that we're a part of. For What It's Earth can be found on many podcast streaming platforms. For more tips and eco-inspiration, check out my blog at www.theartofecology.com. You can also find me on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube at The Art of Ecology. And with that, I will see you next time on For What It's Earth.